If you have your Bibles, take them to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. What a gift it is to us who don't deserve any communication from you because of our rebellion and our rejection of you. But you in your grace and in your mercy have reached out to us. As your word says, you demonstrate our, your love to us while we are yet sinners. And one of the ways you have demonstrated that love is through your word, which tells us about ourselves, which tells us about Christ, which tells us about you, which tells us about the path back to a relationship with you. What a gift your word is. And I pray that uh, as Clifton um, comes and opens it up to us, that you would uh, give him confidence in your word, that uh, you would give him clarity in his words to us, and that it would be a help to our hearts, to our minds, and to our wills. We pray this in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen. It's good to see everyone. As Paul has said, we're in Psalm chapter 1, and as such, because we're away from 1 Corinthians for uh, this short little while, we have to do a little bit of introductory work. Uh, luckily, I don't have to do too much, but um, if you listen to pastors uh, frequently or have been to other churches or heard the Psalms preached before, you might know that Psalms is one of those books that's a favorite for so many pastors and preachers out there. Um, it's consistently quoted and said as uh, one of those favorite books and is quoted by believers and non-believers alike. It's a popular book in the Bible and it has 150 chapters worth of collections of songs, praises, admirations, and above all of these things, emotion. Psalms is a very emotional book if you ever take the time to be in it. It has a lot going for it. Uh, and as such, it makes it clear it's written for people. It's clear when you go through it that this is written by people, different authors for many of these songs, who not only care about people, but show a deep emotion and a longing that can be empathetic and sympathized with. So many things that we feel on a regular basis. Happiness, thankfulness, depression. So many things that we tend to go through in the course of our lives that are very easily felt. And chapter one of Psalms, of course, is the first of a long series of these completive songs. As such, um, the book of Psalms is broken up into about five sections throughout, and scholars like to debate on the reason why they were collected in these certain ways. Um, but one and two don't have to go through this problem of trying to figure out where they could fit or why they were put in a certain way, because not only are they the first, but the Hebrew Bible actually puts Psalm 1, together, Psalm 1 and 2 together into one psalm, and it works more as an introductory psalm. It's kind of the precursor before you actually get into the rest of the book. In a certain way, it works as the first thoughts that we get into this large collection. And as such, this is an opening introspection to a huge collection of tons of deliberations. But Psalms does a little bit more, and chapter 1 has to do a little bit more. There are certain demands that 
chapter one as an introduction has to make on the reader so we understand where the book as a whole is going to go. It needs to acquaint us with the body of work that is to come and it needs to pull our perspective in the right place. And just like an introduction to any other book would also do, it needs to grab our attention and not let go. The introduction has a specific purpose that needs to draw our attention in so we know where we're going. And Psalm 1 does this in a curious but a very important way. The psalmist wants to take a root specifically on an explanatory nature. The psalmist needs to explain something. And the reason he needs to explain something is because he has a surety of something. The psalmist knows something for fact. He has a certainty about it. And when the psalmist has a certainty about something that not only he knows in his mind but knows in his heart, it arouses in him a call to speak up and tell the people, to tell the rest of the congregation. And the certainty that he has in his mind is this, that God is with his people. God is with his people. This psalm's roots are in the Lord and the branches spread out to demonstrate how God is loving and caring and is with his children. Because the psalms as a whole are a collection of praises. Even the Hebrew text actually calls it the book of praises and another way to put that would be the hymn book. It's a collection of hymns deeply saturated by a longing to glorify God and speak about who he truly is. As such, you can see in some of the Psalms, start with this opening subtitle of To the Choir Master. And the reason they do that is because Psalms were actually songs. They were sung in the congregation, just as we praise and worship together as we have already. Many of them were even accompanied by instruments, which is the reason why so many of them come up in the Psalms. I will praise you with the pipe and with the lyre. They come up multiple times because they were sung together in the congregation. And as such, this very first psalm, in a way, is the mood setter for the rest of the book. The psalmist wants us to put our attention where it needs to be placed. And the reason is because the psalmist has this fact, this mission that he needs to get across to the audience so they know where to go in their praise. And the reality is that there is a God who not only exists, but his dominion is the entire world and he demands to be praised. It's not simply a reality that the Christian needs to remind himself of, but to know and let it feed him in every inch of himself. That the praise may appropriately glorify God when it recognizes that this praise will never be enough, but is always due. God demands to be praised, and he wants to be praised for who he is and who he says he is. And the psalmist has this urge, this desire to tell his people how to praise appropriately that God may be glorified first. As he has this grand reality in fourth, chapter one brings us three smaller realities that he uses to demonstrate how this grand reality can be understood by his congregation. The psalmist walks through in these six verses three realities in which we can understand God's connection with his children that he may be praised and worshipped 
appropriately, that he may be glorified above all other things. And the first one is found in verses 1 and 2, if you have your Bible in front of you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The first thing that the psalmist wants to put forward is the heavenly focus that he has when he attributes his praise. There's someone he's praising, and we know that from the very first word that comes up in the psalm, that word, blessed. And most of us understand what this word means on a certain level. We've heard Christian and non-Christian alike use this word blessed. I feel blessed today. It's joy, it's admiration, it's, it's positivity. It's a positive turn, I'm happy. If you're blessed, you're happy. You have a certain elation about you. But blessed is much more than that when you're talking about not only the Bible, but God himself, and you're speaking with God. And the term means to be approved by God. One who is blessed has the hand of the Lord upon them. And one who is blessed understands his connection with God on a personal level. They understand that God is using them to orchestrate his own glory, and they understand that the one who is blessed has God with him and not against him. It's an intimate connection, understanding that you are blessed. And the psalmist starts with this because it's not only a present reality, but it's an important and foundational thing to put forward as his first idea. Because he doesn't state this in terms of a subjective reality. It's objective. That's why he said, blessed is the man. He doesn't say, blessed could be the man, or blessed if the man, or blessed was, or blessed will be the man. He said, blessed is the man. You are blessed now. It's a present reality. And he doesn't want to go anywhere before he understands that you as a Christian... And because of an understanding of not only the death of Christ, but of the God who should be glorified primarily, has his approval resting on you. It's a beautiful place to start. And he wants that to fulfill all further praise as the introduction to the introduction. It is a present reality. God informs us that we are blessed. And that our attention should turn to him to see how we are blessed. Jesus himself started actually in the exact same spot in the Sermon on the Mount, which many rightfully consider to be the greatest sermon ever preached in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And he started the exact same way in chapter 5 when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus started in the same place because it's an important place to start. We have to, as Christians, understand that we are blessed. And we have to understand this intimacy we have with God to stir up as much emotion as we can from the mind and then from the heart to understand how worthy God is to be praised. That we may soak in how good God is to us. But before he decides to go forward and unpack that, he actually uses a bad example first. 
And he uses it because he wants us to understand the polar opposites of a certain kind of people, which are talked about in that second part of verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There are three people mentioned that are not blessed. Because there are those who walk in the counsel of wicked men. And he wants to bring this up because he knows that just as the man is blessed by God, there are also those who take counsel from wicked men. It's another present reality, although a negative one. W.S. Plummer wrote that when the psalm talks about the walk of a person or the counsel of a person, as it's mentioned here, the idea is used not only to note, denote not merely his advice, but his aims, his maxims, his principles, his practices, because saints and sinners are unlike. The wicked man and the blessed man are on the opposite sides. They are unsimilar. And while this may seem a strange thing for us to contemplate, it is very much something that he wants to bring up before people step into praise. Where is your primary counsel from? Where do you walk? Because it defines so much about you. I grew up in a Christian home, and I grew up in the church, um, and it wasn't until I was about 16 that I was baptized and accepted Christ. But when I was younger and unacceptive of Christ, I uh, hung out with a group of kids in our complex with my younger brother, and two things kind of defined us, which was breaking things and not great language. And those were two things that much of the neighborhood could define us as. I remember we used to spend days just hanging with each other and finding things to do and playing around, but I remember the language that we used, and it wasn't only swearing for the sake of swearing, but just at a negative cost to each other and other people around us. Um, but I remember one time I was walking home with a good friend of mine from this group, and after I had made a joke, he commented on my behavior saying, you know, Clifton, I'm happy to have be friends with a Christian who's not afraid of swearing. And I remember before even this time when I would have considered myself a Christian, the amount of pain that it ignited in my heart just trying to understand what he said. Because I knew enough about being a Christian to know that he was saying I'm happy to hang out with a Christian who's a hypocrite. And on one hand, I felt pain because I knew it dishonored my parents who were Christians, who I loved, and I also knew it brought dishonor on the church that I was a part of, that they very much knew. But there was another level where I understood that God's name was something that should not be trifled with. Before I was a Christian, there was this understanding, and there was this understanding that did something to me. As I got older and started to actually get into the Bible, I started understanding that it's not what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 9 when he said, be all things to all people. Because when we're with people, we use the example of Christ and not ourselves as our backbone. Jesus himself was with sinners consistently. We hear this from people, and if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this before. Jesus was with sinners. But Jesus was not a sinner he was not characterized by the actions that the people he was with were. He lived an explosively different lifestyle than them. 
And the reason he was with them was not to take counsel from them, but to give them counsel to lead them to something better. He walked a very different path. And when the psalmist brings this to mind, he brings it to our minds that the walk that we walk is different. And it's different based on the second verse that follows directly after. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The one who is blessed finds their pleasure founded in the things of God as their primary source of sustainment. And the reason he finds his delight there is because he not only loves the law of the Lord, but the one who gave the law. Because the very law of God is him himself. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. When you have a Bible in front of you, I pray that all of us consistently remember what it is, which is the very heart of the one who created you. And it calls you to something radical because God has an understanding of everything that's ever happened and existed and has given us a small part that we as Christians know is life-transforming. And it is a huge thing to understand. Psalm 19 declares that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Because knowing God is loving God's word. If you love God, you love his word. I know for all of us it can become tiresome and troubling and frustrating to take time out of our busy schedules and get into the word of God. But for the Christian, there has to be at the end of the day a desire to get into it. A longing to know God's heart because you know the condition of your own heart and want to have more of his. That your thoughts may be his thoughts and your aims may be his aims. And those things are understood when you take this book and you understand that you want to live by the things in this book. When the psalmist brings all of these things down in this first reality to understand the way that we live our lives. That's why he says on his law, he meditates day and night. This idea of meditation, uh, when I was first thinking about it, I was imagining this sitting in an empty room and it's quiet and kind of humming with your legs crossed in a dark room. And on one hand, yes, it's the concentration, it's the focus, but on a deep level, one of the things that the Hebrew word actually denotes is this idea of mumbling. And before you think that that's weird to think of muttering or mumbling, in a sense, think about how many times in a day you talk to yourself. And I don't know about you, but I'm a verbal processor, and if you're a verbal processor, you talk to yourself. And it's not because you're crazy, I hope, but <laughs> it's because you have ideas in your head that you need to be able to process by using words. When you have things in your head, you try to understand them verbally so you can perform them. And that's exactly what he's getting at. He knows the law of the Lord, and he knows what God has done, and he knows what God has said. But it's not enough for him. An action is performed directly after because the word of God is not only something to be known, but something to be done. And he wants God's word to permeate every ounce of everything he does 
to bring as much glory to God as he can. And again, the psalmist just hits hard with these things in the Christian reality that so many of us, I know I sometimes do not want to accept because we want to be responsible for ourselves and we want to do the things we want to do. But when God says that you are approved by me, it also is the understanding that a life transformed by God wishes to honor God. So he explains to his congregation the truth of what it means to want to honor God more than anything else. And he has this call to this pensive analysis. A recognition that the word of God has a depth to it that demands focus. And it demands an intention of thought. You don't just read the word of God to try and move on to the next thing and check something off your checklist, but you want it to permeate the things that you do. It takes you into a time of reflection because you understand that you long to know the heart of God on a deeper level and deeper than you did before. So we have a duty not simply to know or memorize the word, but to engage with it so that it may affect our minds and our hearts and transform the way we live. And the delighted one is steadfast in his thoughts to the Lord. And this is the first reality that the psalmist starts with. And the second one is the following verse in verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The goodness of God is himself. And his law is good because it is a reflection of himself. Through reflection on this law, we reflect on the very foundation of humanity as it should be, and we understand the bedrock of the Christian faith. And this is where this next verse takes us. That's why he says he is like a tree planted by water. The psalmist recognizes that the fundamental issue of sin is a belief in the self. Think of every marketing campaign you've ever heard of in your entire life, and I can almost guarantee you that it starts with, you are great as you are, but we're going to make you a bit better. And it starts with this primary understanding that you are the solution to your old problems, but we want to also help you out. And it caters to this idea that you are fine and you are good on your own. And that the power that you can achieve by looking into yourself is so grand that you just need to keep understanding yourself and keep digging into yourself and keep working on yourself and you'll grow up to be as perfect a human being as you could ever want to be. But because the psalmist loves his congregation, he doesn't lie to them, and he tells them the truth, which is that you have a foundation that sustains you and created you, and you need to be attached to that foundation. Above all other things, you need to be attached to your foundation, because we cannot function away from our source. We did not bring ourselves to life, but we were raised. A huge verse for me when I was coming to Christ was this understanding that started in worship songs and I finally found in the scriptures that said, you have been raised to life. Now tell me if you can think of an example of when a dead man raised themselves to life. And if you did, let me know, because that's really interesting. Dead men don't raise themselves to life because they're dead. And the primary understanding of someone who's dead is they don't function. They don't do anything. 
And God is trying to get his people to understand what's been done for them. That they've been created, and to be created by God and understand you're created by God, and to love God for creating you and saving you, is to want to be attached with him. And understanding that the nourishment that you get that will do any good to you has to be attached with him above anything else. And this is why the psalmist says his delight is in the law of the Lord. Because it's our source of sustainment because his law is himself. It has deep roots which gain nourishment as far as they can. And this verse clearly speaks to the Lord being the the foundation of that sustainment. You have to be attached to the Lord at all costs because you cannot find any foundation in your entire life that's going to be as strong as the word of God. I was looking at a montage of videos not long ago about buildings being demolished. And one of these buildings um, had demolition charges that go all through the building that start with the bottom and kind of go up the top to destroy this bottom level so these buildings will cave in straight down. Most of them are in populated areas. And the montage was supposed to be a funny montage because there were all these demolitions gone wrong. And I found out that no one got hurt, so you can still laugh. But these buildings would do one of two things because the attempts to demolish them failed, which is they'd either A, explode and then tip over instead of going straight down, or the bottom level would fall, and they just fall down and stay there. And everyone would go, what? Come on. Like, just so awkward that this building didn't fall down like it was supposed to. But the fundamental problem was the people who placed the charges had no proper understanding of the strength that that foundation had. And it is the exact same with the Christian. When he starts with this idea about the counsel of the wicked and the way of sinners and the seed of scoffers, I truly believe he's trying to get the people to understand that these people think they have a foundation. They think they have a power. But if you are truly attached with the heart of God and long to know him better and yearn for understanding the Bible so you can know the heart of God, the enemy is going to underestimate the power that you have so deeply because the enemy does not have any power. We don't have any power. We understand the weakness that we have, but we've attached ourselves to the one who has the power. And if you're attached to the person who has the unlimited power, you know he's going to sustain you against any attack that will come your way. Life is hard, but our foundation sustains us. And the powers that be that will attack you are are never going to break you if you are truly attached to the thing that really sustains you. And it's not ourselves. It is God. That's why he says that it is like a tree planted by streams of water. If you've seen a tree get blown up in a hurricane or in a windstorm and doesn't move, it's because their roots are deep in the ground. If you have deep roots in the scripture and long to know God's heart, you won't be moved. You will be shaken, which is not a fun thing to go through, but you won't be moved. You won't be uprooted because you have deep roots in the one who can sustain you. And he pushes this home to understand that you can be planted in the place where you should be planted. 
And this reality permeates into his final point in this last reality he has in verses four to six. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Before the psalmist is finished, he decides to reflect on the wicked one more time as he already has before. And he decides to explain, again, the opposing opposite that the wicked has from the blessed one. And he starts with what I think is a really sarcastic thing right at the beginning of verse 4. He says, the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. And it seems like he's pretty much saying the wicked are blown over by a gust of wind. It seems very sarcastic, but it's also very true. If you don't have a foundation, you're going to get blown over. He wants us to reflect on how unlike people who are not connected with Christ are from those who are. They have something to keep root in. The wicked are no match for the Lord. That's why we take counsel from people who are other Christians, because they've walked through things that we ourselves haven't walked through yet. That's why I love talking to older Christians, because they're not stubborn, for the most part. They've just gone through more of life than you have. And they've seen God work in their life in many more occasions than you have. And it's an amazing thing to comprehend and see that in a testimony. Because you understand how much God has worked in people and the breadth of the amount of people that we see in the church. If you end up talking to five people tonight, I guarantee you will be very surprised at how different those five people are from each other, let alone how they were brought to Christ. And if you've ever been in a relative-sized congregation, I know that the average size, I believe, in North America is about 75 people, you will be amazed at how different those people are, even in small communities. Because God works in mysterious ways and in amazingly different ways. But God in those ways has always been sure and firm and has worked himself evidently in people's lives. Twice now in verse 1 and 2 and now in 3 and 4, we see this example of the opposing sides of the wicked and the blessed and the lack of a parallel. And he wants us to understand in the humblest way that he can put forward how all of us as Christians understand the way of the wicked because we were them at one point. All of us, in some measure in our lives, have committed a crime against the Lord. God has always demanded perfection because he is perfect. And as a perfect and holy God, he cannot tolerate sin. And at one point in our lives, we have all decided and chosen willingly to go against him. And while the psalmist probably doesn't take pleasure in telling such a painful truth to his congregation, he also loves them enough to put forward the truth. And he honors God enough in telling his congregation the truth. He loves them enough, just as God has loved them enough, to tell them where they fall short. Because if you never knew you fell short, you'd never know what you needed to atone for. And you'd never know that there is any way that you could ever experience eternity. 
or ever see God. Because if we hold on to our sin, we will not see God. And if we hold on to anything but him, we are doomed to the judgment that we very much deserve. I heard a pastor not long ago say something that hurt, but was true according to the wiser people that were among us, which was, when Christ brings the time of judgment, there will not be an unbeliever who yells that it is not fair for me to leave the presence of the Lord. And that's a terrifying thing to understand. It really is. To know the depth of what we deserve in terms of our sin. Because we've heard that word a lot if you've grown up in the church. You've heard that word sin a lot, and it starts to dissolve in its meaning. It starts to not mean anything because we hear it so much. And the psalmist is reminding his congregation that the sinners in the congregation of the righteous will be with God, but the wicked will stand in judgment. He needs to remind them of this thing because it's a scary reality, but a true one. All of us at some point have made ourselves worthy of judgment. But the psalmist does not stop there. That's not the reality he wishes to leave them with. He starts with that and then tells them their hope. Verse 6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows. And he knows the way. The Lord knows the objective way. God has made us and therefore knows what is best for us. And God loves you and wants you to know what he knows. Our knowledge and our thankfulness and our joy comes from the fountain and foundation of all. And only God can show his people where they can turn. Because if God knows, he can sustain. And if he knows, then he can bless. And if he knows, he can atone. Because how could you ever know you were guilty of anything if you didn't know what you were guilty of? The law of the Lord shows the sin that we have all committed as human beings so we can understand that we can be saved from it. This is why we have gospels. So you can understand the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to understand that your sin has been atoned for. You can understand that there is a way to be forgiven of the sin in which you've trespassed in. Because if we learn from his word that the suffering and penalty that Jesus Christ has taken for our cross and the grace by which he has offered to all mankind who come to him in repentance and faith, then we can have hope. And this hope is that we are a blessed people. We are a blessed people to understand the death and resurrection of Christ. We are very blessed to have the word of God at the touch of our fingers. It's quite encouraging to hear of brothers and sisters in the field that go to deliver Bibles to people. And Bible translation is slowly growing as the years go on that people can understand the word of God so they can turn to God as their fountain and foundation of everything. Acts 17.30 says, The times of ignorance have passed, and now God calls all men everywhere to believe, which is an unexclusive term everyone everywhere to believe. God is calling you to understand his word so you can understand that the sin that you have committed against him has been atoned for. 
The greatest blessing that we have is that our God knows us and loves us and sent his son to die for us. And these are the things that direct our praise. These are the things that direct our praise. It's the realities that shape us as believers. They are how our praise can be filled with the things it should be, which is deep repentance and glorious thankfulness. That in everything we can do, we truly wish to honor him because we know that he has done everything for us. That he has made a way that we could be atoned for our sin and live in eternity with him. And if you want your praise to be full of something, let it be full of the gospel of Jesus Christ and a longing to know him more. And I promise you, it will change everything in your life. Absolutely everything. These are the hopes that we can rest our commitment to him. And this is what the psalmist wants us to understand is our imperishable hope. If you don't know Christ tonight, please talk to somebody near you. There are so many people at this church who want to talk to you and want to help you understand that God doesn't tell you that you're a sinner because he just wants you to feel bad. He tells you you're a sinner because it's true and it's a reality. And he wants you to understand that his son has died for you. And we as Christians know that we have this hope of eternity and we want to see you there. This is the imperishable hope that we have. And this is how the psalmist starts this giant book of praises so we can understand how deep his love is for us. And we can understand where our praise should be directed, which is in the mind and the heart, so that we can declare his goodness always. I'll invite the worship team up as we, uh, as we pray. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the deep love that you have for us, not only to provide your word for us, but to provide a way that we can live with you forever. Thank you for the opportunity to have a Bible that we can know you. Please ignite in our hearts a deeper desire for you. Lord, we pray you forgive us for our sins that we have chosen to commit against you. And we thank you for what your son, Jesus Christ, has done for us on the cross. May we live in a thankfulness for that work that we may know you better and in all things give glory to you. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen.